Welcome to Lips on Life. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and in this interview series, I'm talking to extraordinary people who are living their dreams. It's my hope that their stories will inspire you to live your own dreams. So let's get started. My next guest is Alan Von Capel. Alan is the CEO of Educational Alliance, a nonprofit organization that provides social and educational programs to more than 50,000 New Yorkers annually, and he's only 41. I'm going to guess that until today, you might not have heard of Alan. But trust me, that won't be the case for long. This man is so dynamic. I've had the privilege of hearing him speak several times, and Alan is one of those rare people who can command the attention of any room. And you're going to find out why now. Alan, thank you for being here. It's great to be invited. Thanks. With all of my guests, I like to know how you've gotten to where you are. So let's start at the beginning. Where were you born? I was born at Long Island Jewish Hospital in New York on the Queens and Nassau County border and grew up uh, on Long Island. And you just answered the question of where you went to school. You went to school in Long Island. And then where'd you go to college? I went to Queens College in Flushing, which is where I took most of my classes, although my degree is out of the City University of New York. I had a degree in public policy, but I started off as a music major. You did? I did. I started off thinking I was either going to be a cantor or I was going to be an opera singer. And uh, boy, life just takes different turns. So what happened? So my first year in college, a black kid, a Jewish kid, and and a gay kid were beaten up on campus. Uh, All at the same time? Different times. And we said, boy, this is really awful. And we should do something about it. And Queens College had given us Andrew Goodman and Mickey Schwerner, who were two Freedom Riders back in 64. And we said, you know, this is going to be the 30th anniversary of Freedom Summer. We should do a 30th anniversary of the Queens College uh, participants who went down to Mississippi to register people of color to vote. And we should rename our library clock tower the Cheney Goodman Schwerner Clock Tower. And so I invited to campus all of the participants who were still living that we could find who went down to Mississippi as Queens College students. And one of them is a guy named Mark Levy who worked for a labor union that represented hospital interns, residents, and fellows. After the event was over, and it was supposed to be a very small event, ended up being a huge event. And after it was over, uh, Mark said, now that you're graduating from college, we would love if you came to work in the union. I said, I'm not graduating. I'm just finishing my freshman year year. And he said, well, we have nothing for you. But I don't like taking no for an answer. So I called his office every day for must have been close to a month until they finally brought me in and they gave me a job for the summer organizing uh, against the closure of some of New York City's public hospitals. Because back then, Mayor Giuliani was trying to privatize some of the public hospitals. So I spent the summer working for $650 a week on this massive organizing campaign, which was massive for me at that time. And at the end of the summer, I just got bit by the organizing bug and by social justice. And I realized that music uh, was a passion, but it wasn't going to be my life's work. So what happened after that freshman summer? How did you continue on into sophomore year? What were your other summer jobs? And what was your first job out of college? Or did you go to grad school? Well, first of all, the first real job I had was waiting tables. And I waited tables for a local restaurant chain that's a New England-based chain. And I loved it. I started off as a soda jerk. I then started to pick up tables because there was a woman named Patty who would take a million smoke breaks. And she would always want me to cover her tables while she was out smoking. 
something. And so she'd always go, hey, Alan, do you want to go and cover my tables? I'm going to go catch a smoke break. And I would make more money covering her tables than I would scooping ice cream. So I immediately took all of her tables. And I just wish she would smoke two or three packs a day. And so I kept encouraging her saying, Patty, Patty, it's beautiful outside. You should grab a cigarette break. And I would to go take her tables. And I just loved it. And it was like immediate gratification. This was in college? No, this was uh, high school and then my first year of college. And I paid for my college. I lived with my grandmother. We didn't have money to send me away to school. So I lived with my grandmother in Queens. I moved out of Long Island into Queens, lived with her, which I thought was awful uh, when it first happened. Now I think it's probably one of the best things that ever happened. And then went to school. So I waited tables the first year. And then I worked for the labor union. I never left them. I stayed organizing hospital interns, residents, and fellows my entire time through college. So I worked about 80% time for the union and went to school at the same time. And I'm sort of like, you know, I think I'm probably a little less so now, but I'm pretty indefatigable. So we just did it. And did you continue on with the union after college? I did. I did it for another year uh, for that union. And so I did everything from organizing new members. I was down in Miami for my last semester of college organizing uh, the house staff physicians at Jackson Memorial Hospital, which were the lowest paid house staff physician in the country. Mm-hmm. And they were massive. There was like hundreds and hundreds of them. And so we organized them to join the union. And then they got a 25% salary increase in their first contract. And then I went on to fight the merger of of BU Hospital and Boston City Hospital in Boston. And then I went to work for nursing home workers on Long Island, and then went on to work for dormant and janitors um, at 32BJ SEIU, which had been this union rife with graft, and a new administration had come in, had started a political program, and actually I ended up taking the job in part because Bill de Blasio had just finished uh, managing Hillary Clinton's 2000 Senate campaign, and they said if I had taken the job, I could share an office with Bill de Blasio. And I thought this might be a lousy job, but at least I would have gotten to work for a guy who just ran a a statewide Senate campaign. And it turned out to be like an amazing job. And where'd you go after that? Uh, After that, I gave a speech. So all of this organizing, it's like I'm learning how to organize. I'm learning how to talk to people who come from all these different walks of life that I had not been familiar with. It was totally my comfort zone. It was all about justice. And at the same time, I'm having this moment where like I'm coming out as a gay man. Um, And I'm doing so, you know, quietly among some friends, uh, then start to professionally talk about being a gay man. And then one day, I gave uh, a speech at the swearing-in ceremony of the first out gay man elected to the assembly. Who is? Danny O'Donnell. So Danny had said, look, if you can speak both as a labor guy and also as an LGBT person, that would be amazing because then, you know, I could cut down on the speakers. I said, absolutely. And it was the first time I ever talked about being gay. And I talked about how personally significant it was for me to see someone like Danny elected to the state assembly and to see it in my lifetime. And uh, I cracked up. Like, I, I, my voice started to crack when I spoke. And the recruiter for the Empire State Pride Agenda, which was at the time this, the country's largest statewide lesbian and gay organization, uh, was there. And the chair of the board immediately calls this recruiter, who they had hired to find the new executive director, and said, do you know this guy, Alan? And the recruiter says, oh, yeah, we know Alan. And, uh, you know, several people mentioned his name. Uh, but they all said the same thing. He's too young. I was 27. And he loves his job so much, he'll never leave the labor movement. And so they said, just do us a favor, call him. 
And so they called me. They said, do you know about the Empire State Pride agenda? I said, absolutely. They said, you know, they're looking for an executive director. I said, I didn't know that. They said, do you think you should maybe think about that? And I said, well, you know, I think of it as, a, as an organization of rich white guys who summer on Long Island. I said, I'm not rich. I'm not white. And I have never used summer as a verb before. So I don't think I'm the right person to be running this organization. I said, but I think if you wanted to hire someone who was an organizer and who thought about organizing non-lesbian and gay constituents, and remember this is you know the early 2000s, so trans really wasn't as dominant a force then, so it was mostly lesbian and gay organizations. I said, I would be really interested in talking to you about you know, you hiring someone who's not like what you think you should be hiring. So they invited me to meet the board who is about to select a candidate that night. And I sat in the room and I said, look, close your eyes. And I got butcher block paper, you know, the big paper that you tear off and post onto the wall. And I got this big, fat, chunky, colorful markers. And I said, I'm going to do a brain exercise with you right now, brainstorm. Close your eyes. If you can imagine what our movement would look like what would it be? Who would we be talking to? What would the issues we'd be talking about be? Who would do the talking? Who would we actually be talking to? And what would the work look like? And they put up some of the best answers that I'd ever seen. Like what? You know, they were talking about people who weren't gay or lesbian. They were talking about everyday people lending their voices to these issues. Because before then, Gays and lesbians had built organizations that looked like straight people's organizations. You know, it looked like inside baseball. You know, you raised a lot of money. You had a few people own the relationships with the elected officials. They won all of these legislative campaigns with very little organizing done on the bottom. Those were lesbian gay political organizations, which were different from the HIV AIDS organizations, which were very much from the bottom up. So after I looked at this, I said, well, this looks like a great organization. Like, why aren't we doing that? Like, I'd want to run that organization. But the one that's in the job description, I don't want to run that organization. And they asked if I would run the Empire State Pride Agenda, and I was 27. And I have to say, it was by far the most life-changing professional uh, decision I had ever made. Why? Because I'd never run anything before. Because it was like both... Uh, running an organization that had so much media attention on it because of the issues that we were working on that I didn't really have room to make big, big mistakes. It was learning how to fundraise, having never fundraised before. It was learning how to lobby legislators in Albany, and I had almost never been to Albany before. It was thinking about the statewide uh, organization, and I'd never stepped foot into Rochester or Syracuse or Buffalo or the North Country before taking this job. And um, and then running an agency and learning all of the mechanics to it. And, uh, you know, so it was a crash course on how to run a not-for-profit. Yeah, and how do you grow into something like that so quickly and at such a young age? You know, I think th- the biggest answer I'll say is I was so young I didn't know to be afraid. And because I didn't know to be afraid, I ended up doing things and taking risks. And one of the lessons I learned from that job in like year one is that, and I believe this to be true today as it was back then, 
there are 15 decisions that a not-for-profit leader needs to make on any given day. Five of them will be great decisions. Five of them will be fine, okay. And five of them will be mulligans. You would have wished you had an opportunity to do them over. But the reality is, is that tomorrow, there are another 15 decisions that are going to get made. And if you obsess over any one of those first 15 decisions, you are going to be paralyzed in this job and you're not going to be able to move the ball up the field. And ultimately, that's what you're there for, is to help move a ball up the field. And so you don't really have time to lament the ones that you call mulligans, and you actually don't have a lot of time to pat yourself on the back for the good ones, um, because tomorrow there's 15 more, and it all goes on the tape. So the idea is, you know, okay, so I didn't do so well on this one. Now, if in three days I have the same decision and I still mess that decision up too, okay, now I got to ask myself why I'm not learning anything from these. But hopefully you're learning and you just don't beat yourself up. And I learned how to be decisive in those early years. So you accomplished so much while you were there and then you stepped down. I did. What was the impetus for that? So I stepped down in uh, January of 2010, uh, having passed several pieces of legislation in the state, like medical decision-making and the right to bury our partners if they were sick, overturning sodomy as a statute and code uh, in the state, and also raising uh, millions and millions and millions more dollars for non-HIV AIDS-related health and human service organizations, uh, which had been woefully underfunded um, in the state. And... One of the things that we kept on hearing after the marriage bill passed the assembly is the Senate's never going to take this issue up. And we had essentially flipped the state Senate to a Democratic majority who were committed to passing marriage equality. And once they got in, their caucus fell apart in this very public and disastrous coup. So there were you know, big fights for most of 2009 over who actually was in control of the state Senate. And while most every other issue fettered away, the marriage issue still managed to stay at the forefront of people's minds, in part because we kept it there. Um, but we were about to go into a 2010 election cycle, never really knowing who in the Senate was actually in favor of this legislation and who wasn't. Before then, it was easy to tell us yes in a closed room with no press around and no one putting you on record. But I really wanted to know how many of those were firm yeses. And so when it looked as though we were not going to win in the Senate, but we had an, a, a brief window to call the question anyway um, and to put people on record, um, I decided it was really important to put people on record and to make sure that we didn't go into the next election cycle not knowing who was with us. And we had a roadmap of who to work against. What I knew in that moment, though, is that I need to leave my job. Because there were some legislators who had committed to vote for the bill, but this was a politically difficult vote for them, even though from a, their own conscience it was an easy vote. Politically it was difficult, and I'd be making them take a difficult vote knowing that the bill would actually go down. And that doesn't engender a lot of good feelings, you know, towards me from some of the legislators. So I knew that somebody else would need to come in and, and close the deal. And I have to say, that is a life's lesson that will always be with me too, and probably one of the most professionally difficult things. Because if you're like me, right, I like before and afters. And 
I had gone up to Albany every week for three days lobbying for this legislation before it was popular, before anybody else started to pay attention to it, before it looked even doable in New York. And we had worked, you know, in large coalitions to get people supportive of this issue. And to not be there on the day that it actually passed the Senate um, was for me, you know, people say it's like, oh, these are character building moments. Yeah, sometimes character building moments really suck. Like, and that was a sucky character building moment. But we got it at the end of the day. And what I tell people who ask me is that everybody has a role to play at some significant period of time. And that just wasn't going to be the role I was going to play at that moment. And so that's just how it works. But I can go and now look at my two sons, uh, Ethan is four and Patrick is two, and say, hey, this thing that you think was never a big deal, which is actually was at one point a big deal, like I had a hand in that. And I feel really proud about it. When you stepped down, did you know what your next professional move was going to be? I just wanted to land someplace that looked respectable so it didn't look like I had been defeated. Is so that an honest answer? It's a great answer. It's That's a my very honest, honest answer. answer. I love it. So where do people go who like who who <laughs> who have to leave the organization before the big vote takes place? You get appointed deputy controller of the city of New York. So I became the youngest uh a deputy controller in the city's history and the first out gay deputy controller in the city's history. So I felt like I had a great business card. I had some great uh, bona fides like next to me. And I felt like it was a totally respectable place to land. And how long were you there? Two years. And then what happened? I hated it. That's my honest answer. You know, I love these honest answers. <laughs> I thought the um, the controller who I worked for was probably one of the one of you know lots of people can get elected to controller, but very few people can actually do the job with great skill. And I thought he was actually an excellent controller, John Liu, um, and really smart and understood uh, the city budget, understood the pension issues like better than anybody else. But I just realized like I go to work every day, and it didn't feel to me like it was terribly satisfying in the. I was sitting in. So it fit a time. And while I was at city controller, I finished my graduate degree at NYU Wagner um, in uh, public administration. My partner and I bought our first home together because we had been renting. And one of the things that we were never able to do when I was at the Pride Agenda was buy a home. And this afforded us the opportunity to actually look together. And we uh, began adopting a family. And I left when Ethan was born. You left to be a full-time parent? I left to go on paternity leave. And I just didn't go back. So was it from that government position that you got to Educational Alliance? No. I made a pit stop at Bend the Ark, a Jewish partnership for justice. I was the CEO of that new entity. And Bend the Ark was terrific. Amazing. What was some of the work that you did there? You know, first of all, what I was most proud of is that there, until that time, had not been a Jewish social justice organization that works solely on domestic issues. Most Jewish organizations had only worked on domestic issues, but also Israel, and Israel being very controversial, depending on how you slice it, uh, I believe that there needed to be a political home for Jews who were really interested in some issues happening in this country, whether it would be education inequality or immigration reform or living wage or the plight of domestic workers in California and abroad. I mean, I thought this should be a place where people should engage, and it really infuriated me that um, that every time Jews would go lobby in Washington, uh, legislators, members of Congress would give us their foreign affairs person to speak with as though that was the only thing we cared about. And 
I was also aware that we are about 3% of the, of the population in the country, um, but we are in some cases 50% or more of the political contributions in certain areas of the country. And I thought to myself, what are we getting for all that money? Like, wouldn't it be interesting if Jews actually said, hey, education's really important to us and we're gonna make this our issue. And before we write a check to somebody, we're gonna ask for Israel, however we ask for it, and we're going to ask about education, or we're gonna ask for Israel, and we're gonna talk about immigration reform. And people began to see us as more than a one-issue caricature, which is what they currently see us as. And I think when you look at uh, the, the numbers about what percentage of Jews go to the polls thinking about Israel when they vote, the number is something like in the teens. But when you ask them what else are Jews caring about in the Kerry election, you know, a majority of people said that they cared about uh, the gap between rich and poor. But if you asked a member of Congress, I don't think a member of Congress would ever have said that. Hmm. Uh, so you were at Ben the Ark for how many years? Two years. Two years. And then? Had another baby. Had another baby! <laughs> about to have another baby, and I was traveling about two out of the four weeks uh, a month when I, uh, when I was at Ben the Ark. We had offices in L.A. and San Francisco and D.C. and Boston and Philadelphia and Minneapolis. And it was just, and people in Chicago, it was just a lot of travel. And at first it felt very glamorous because, you know, you're traveling to all these places and it's kind of fun. And then very quickly you realize you're away from your baby boy and you're not going to get this moment again. You want to adopt a second child and you just bought this home that you're not really living in. And your partner, who has a big boy job too, is feeling like, where are you? I'm doing this by myself. And you kind of like think to yourself, wow, this is a moment, like, I'm not going to get this again. And so I really want to just be here. And so uh, I was at UJA, which is the largest local charity in the world. And I'd never been invited to UJA before. And they invited me to come in a February. And I said, absolutely. And I came in that April to a meeting. And then I ended up talking about my life experience. And the you were invited as CEO of Ben the Ark? Yes. And then all of a sudden, a woman who I know, who was uh, Robin Bernstein, who ran Educational Alliance for 16 years uh, in a spectacular fashion, uh, said, you know, we should have lunch. We have very similar upbringings. And I'm leaving Educational Alliance. And so at lunch, she says, you know, maybe you should be thinking about this job. And I'd never run a service organization before. And I'd never run a service organization before in a community that I live in. And uh, I've never run something that was so big. I mean, Pride Agenda had a budget of just a few million dollars that was, you know, uh, Ben the Ark had a budget of about $15 million, and this has a budget of $40 million. Uh, and the most staff I've had had been like 36 staff, and now suddenly this staff is 600 people. I was like, well, just adding lots of zeros to things. I'm like, am I going to be able to do this? And uh, then I thought to myself, well, that's what I said about Pride Agenda. Like, I've never done this before, and I was able to do that, and like, I'd never worked in government before, and I was able to do that. I didn't like it, but I was able to do it, and so I thought, well, okay, no fear. Like, I'm just going to go and do this, um, and then I really wanted the job. Then I... Why? Wanted it because to be able to serve, and to be able to serve and live in the same neighborhood where you serve... I think which it's is, which the, is lower the Lower East Side. East, okay, yeah, yeah it, it's so amazing, right? Because, um, because for me, my life's work 
can be characterized as working for things that have to do with equality, justice, and New York. And when those three things are able to come together in one place, then I'm really happy. And, you know, when I left the Pride Agenda, it was such a personally and professionally fulfilling experience that I wondered whether or not I had done too much too early. And if I would ever feel good again about something I was doing in my lifetime. And Ben the Ark was great because, you know, from Ben the Ark, I had a national position. I was meeting with senators. I was at the White House quite a bit. I was asked by Dr. King's family to be the only Jewish representative at the 50th anniversary for the March on Washington, you know, taking Heschel's place at the march 50 years beforehand. I mean, talk about an incredible moment for me that 50 years I get to be the person who's talking in Heschel's place at the march. And yet it wasn't fulfilling. What? Why not? I, I wanted to be with community. I wanted to be in community. I want to actually see the people that we were helping. For most of my professional career, I have talked about helping people. I have worked in organizations that helped people, but I'd never been with them when they were being helped. And I think it makes me a better and a smarter, at least more effective advocate for individuals if I can actually see their faces when they're receiving the help or hear their stories, you know, before they get it. And so in just two and a half years, I'm able to speak more articulately than I was, you know, for 10 years before that about the needs of older people who want to live in New York and who've lived and worked in New York their entire life but want to retire in the city but are afraid and live in fear all the time about being able to live here and what it's like to, to be a baby baby boomer to age and, and live in this city, or a mother who, um, who was a Head Start student 20 years ago and now their uh, kid is going to be a Head Start student and she wasn't supposed to be in this position, and so why is she still trapped in poverty? And what can we do to get that family out of poverty? And what it must be like for people to have lived in a neighborhood that is now gentrifying, and is gentrifying all bad? Uh, for the people in the neighborhood. Can there be good gentrification? I mean, these are all things that I get to think about. And, you know, I also think to myself, I don't have to be the smartest person in any of the rooms I'm in. I always just have to hire the smartest people. And, and if I hire the smartest people, then every conversation feels like a masterclass in something. So tell us about some of Educational Alliance's programs. Kind of give us some color for the work that your organization does. Yeah, so Educational Alliance is an agency, as you had said at the beginning of the program, that serves 50,000 New Yorkers, mostly on the Lower East Side, East Village, Chinatown. We've been here for 127 years. And uh, we were established because there's some very wealthy German Jews named Guggenheim and Altman and Isidore Strauss. I just actually bought a fish for my office, uh, and I named him Strauss because I figured if we're going to have a fish that sits on my desk, that it should be named after one of the founders. So, so I have That's great. so I have a fish named Strauss. I just bought it today. It's a little blue betta fish, and it's like Educational Alliance blue. So it's like I managed to find that fish all the way in Chelsea. So I was and I brought him down. So like a like. Like a wooden fish, eh? Oh, no, like a, a living, a, swimming fish, and I have a fishbowl now in my office. With yeah. a blue fish? With a blue fish. Named Strauss. I'm going to have to come visit. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's great. <laughs> and I talked to fish. Strauss, and I think I'm going to ask Strauss, too, like, Strauss, what should I do about this, Strauss? Strauss, I'm, thinking, <laughs> like, I'm just thinking, I'm like, it's like partly crazy, but I don't think you can be totally sane to do these jobs all the time. You have to have some sense of humor about it. So German Jews look down at the Lower East Side. They see all these rag ships coming with immigrants, and they go, oh, my God, these are our cousins, and they look nothing like us. 
They are from the country, we're from the city. They were never formally educated. They were educated in Talmud. We're educated at universities. They don't speak English. We speak English and high German. They speak Yiddish. What the hell's that? And we are going to begin to look bad by everybody else if we don't start cleaning these people up. And so in one night, they raised the money to form educational alliance, and their job was to teach people better English, get them a place to live, get them jobs. And along the way, we helped more than 4 million Americans and New Yorkers go from poverty to the middle class and many on to affluence by just giving them the basic needs. And the reality is, is that human needs have not changed in 127 years. How we deliver those services might have changed, the languages that they speak might have changed, what they look like, the countries of origin might have changed, but people still need a place to live. They still want to feel like they are uh, leaving their next generation better off than they had had it. They still worry about finding a job. They still need to learn English. Um, they still want to have a good education for their young people. I mean, this is like, and they want to move up. I mean, that's just the story of New York. They want to move up. And so we think the American dream lives at Educational Alliance. Um, and so we approach it in two different ways. Uh, the first way is that we think that we can have the best intervention for an individual, but we really need to be serving whole families of people. And so I could help a young person in a program, but if that person goes home and mom is unemployed and dad's not around and big brother's running around with the wrong crowd and grandma is, is living with them and no one's thinking about how she's taking her medication and uncle's coming in and he's like high on drugs and, you know, no one's thinking about that unit, right? Then that child's going to have so many stressors at home, they're not actually going to be able to receive what we have to give them. And so we have to actually think about what's going on for the whole family. So we take a family approach, not an individual approach. And then we think community centers are just the smartest place to offer those services. Because when you go in, think about it, when you go into a, a, to a community center, uh, you may come for one program, but you'll get another service too that you might not even knew you needed. You might come for a service, but maybe you'll go to the gym and do health and wellness. Maybe you'll go do a cultural programming. Maybe you'll do something else. Maybe you'll get a meal from us. Not because you can't afford it, but maybe because you just want the communal meal because you're isolated, right? So you build social capital both among your peers and then also a group of people. Now we take it one level up. We build community centers that have a mix of low-income, middle-class, and well-to-do people all walking through the same door. Some paying full freight, uh, some getting it at a discount, some coming for free. That doesn't happen in a lot of places. And then if you really think about it, you know, if you're a low-income person, most of the services you get are in really crappy buildings. Usually there's a police officer or some guard that's, that's there with a gun when you walk in for the service. You're treated like a thief before you even walk in the door. And here we aspire to treat people as their best selves in hopes that they demand more from society about how they get treated. First of all, that's amazing. Just so we have a sense, run through some of the programs that you have. Offhand, I think you've got a Head Start program, you have a recovery center, you've got a gym. Give yeah, me a I mean, more. I think what I would say is that, you know, we have a different take on all of those programs. So we just don't have a recovery center, but later this summer, we're going to open up the country's first center for recovery and wellness, will be, which will be a community center with long-term beds and short-term beds and community beds. And please don't get me to describe what the beds are because I really don't actually know. I just know that those are three different types of beds that we have. And it, it's a community center that will serve people in the community and not people who might have been mandated to us. So it will try to destigmatize addiction um, 
and substance abuse in our community. And it'll be located in the East Village on Avenue D and 4th Street. And we're really excited about that. So we're constantly thinking, what's a better way? And NYU is going to be our research partner to study with us um, what's happening in that center to help inform the field. We just don't do Head Start education, which is like a national program of which, by the way, we were the first Head Start pilot in 1964, the first early Head Start pilot in 1994. Um, we were also the one of the first kindergartens in New York City. So we got early childhood education pretty much down, but we got to lift these families out of poverty. And so we now are educating over half of the Head Start families are learning with us while their kids are in school. What are they learning? They're learning English as a second language at various stages, financial literacy, high school equivalency. Uh, we have a formal partnership with Borough of Manhattan Community College where they're on site at Educational Alliance actually teaching our families. And then they're going there. The fifth person just graduated from college, 55 more now in college than before. And not just that, but they have access to vocational training. They have access to employment services. They have access to mental health services, which more and more families are, are needing. And so that's a big component. So we just don't do Head Start. We do a two-generation approach to Head Start education. We don't do senior centers because we threw out the rubber chicken dinners. Literally, we threw out the rubber chicken. We now have a vegetarian and fish and plant-based diet. And uh, we I'm have, coming. I know, right? It's delicious. <laughs> <That sounds good. laughs> and it's called Centers for Balanced Living. Um, because who, if you think about it, who wants to go to a senior center? It feels like bingo. It feels like stale. It feels like you're like thrown away and you're there to convalesce. And we think people want to go someplace that's dynamic. So we're always asking ourselves a question, would my mother go here? Um, and as the benchmark, and would we let I her go? That. And would we let her let go her here? That's great. That's and great. so with us, you can take Tai Chi and jazz line dancing and ballroom dancing, and there's ribbon dancing and fan dancing, and there's uh, drama and Yiddish classes and Russian speaking classes and computer classes uh, for folks to learn computer. There's a program where young people are teaching older people how to use their cell phones. Um, there's gardening and painting and ceramics. Uh, there's uh, a ton of exercise of programs. Yeah. And, you know, it's working because with no advertising, we've gone from 700 members two years ago to more than 4,000 members today, and we're gaining 100 more each month. And it's a diverse population. So which was a mostly Jewish crowd now has over 50% of the people are non-English language speakers. So like, like, that's working. And then we have a teen center, which is a nationally acclaimed teen center, which serves the kids in our community or started serving the kids in our community and now serves kids from 81 different high schools around the city. But do you know why they come to us? Why? They come to us because 100% of them graduate high school and go to college. And so 100% 100% in a neighborhood where only 37% of the kids graduate high school. What's the, what's the secret? Secrets relationships. You don't show Expand. up. You don't show up for two days. Someone's calling you or texting you and saying, "Hey, what's up? We haven't seen you. Everything okay?" You're not anonymous. Someone is stewarding that relationship with you. Someone cares about you. Someone is your cheerleader. And if you think about when we are at our best, it is when someone checks in on us. It is when someone cheerleads us. What would we want when we're having a tough time? And that's what we want to give these young people. We want to give those young people an ability to have as many adult youth relationships as possible. Because one of those adults that they become in a relationship with is going to be the one that they tell what their troubles are and will be able to help it.
And so we take them on college tours. We help them fill out their college applications. We find mentors for them. We help them fill out their financial aid forms. We do all the things that their families, for one reason or another, are not able to do for them. And we do it because we think that's society's role, is to lift people up. And our hope is that some of these young people are going to be some of our great leaders. They're going to remember that Educational Alliance and people cared enough about them that maybe they'll do the same to somebody else. That is incredible. I'm speechless. That's profound work. So, you know, I was going to ask you about what some of your favorite programs are and what you're most proud of of the work that you do, but it, have you already described those or do you have others kind of no, on I the mean, docket? look, I think it's the I, I don't think that there's a thing that I'm most proud of in in that. I think I I think I'm proud of the work that we're constantly putting out, but mostly I'm proud that we're building an agency that is curious that is curious about the world, curious about people who walk through our doors, that is interested in knowing the people who walk through our doors and understanding their story and their own life journey, because that helps inform the work that we're doing. And how are are you structuring those conversations? You kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but I want to know, are you gathering with your senior staff or your entire staff or departments to have these conversations? Are they happening on a regular basis? Are you meeting with your clients on a regular basis? How's this happening? We're doing it in different ways. If you're an older adult coming into the agency, you literally sit with somebody for the first time and they do an intake with you just so we can get to know you, just so we know who you are and what you do and what your likes and your dislikes are and that you know and that they know somebody in the agency so when they have an issue they know to go to you so that's just the first uh, first touch if you are a head start family we send a family advocate to your home so they're walking into your home and they're knowing your story and then they're referring those individuals in the home to other people in the agency who follow up uh, on, on on the referral and proactively say hey we understand that you may need a little bit of help you know, can we sit and have a conversation? And in, in, in the Head Start families, we actually use an assessment tool uh, that we do several times a year with the family to assess whether or not they're in crisis, whether or not they're in trauma, whether or not they are stable, sustainable, thriving. Um, and so we're constantly measuring whether or not any of the interventions we're having is actually giving them. And some of it is like, you know, are you employed? Do you have regular income? Some of it is, have you been depressed for the last seven days? In any of the last seven days, would you label yourself as being depressed? Um, because somebody who might say yes, you know, three times, suddenly they go, no, I've gone seven days and I'm not depressed. Well, maybe something we're doing, like we're taking off some of the stressors from you. And if you do see that someone's depressed, do you then follow up? Yes. Yeah, mental health team. Amazing. Um, one of the things I want to touch on is I think the first time I ever heard you speak, you were fairly new to the role at Educational Alliance, and you were talking to us about a term called internal culture. Um, is, does that still exist? And tell us a little bit about what you're doing to bring positive internal culture to your organization. Yeah, I mean, I think if there's something that like I'm fanatical about is internal culture and management. Every organization has an internal culture. And those internal cultures are either created passively or intentionally. And I believe in creating intentional culture. And I believe that part of that culture is created by the CEO or the executive director, but lots of that internal culture is created by the rank and file staff if you give them the ability to create it. 
And so I have empowered uh, 20 individuals in the agency, all of whom volunteered for the roles, from uh, the janitor all the way to program officers, uh, to decide what the culture currently is inside the agency, what it should be inside the agency, and, and what we do to get there. And then also to you know tell me when we're sort of falling down on the job, and I in particular can be doing better at, at this work. And I'll just share with our listeners, um, I think I recall correctly that some of the measures that you've put into place are everything from having employees uh, into your office on a Friday afternoon to celebrate over a drink uh, and to share accomplishments from the week, um, to showing up before work starts to some of the centers and opening the doors for each of the clients that are coming in. And And the staff. And the staff. Amazing. Are Are you still doing that? Yes. Yes. A little harder with drop-off, dropping off two kids at school, um, but still doing it. Not as frequently as I would like to do it. Um, So I was doing it definitely at least twice a week. And now I'm probably down to once a week or so. And I think there was one week where where I wasn't able to do it. But I think people are pretty forgiving about it. And and I call everybody on their birthday or send them an email on their birthday and invite them to tell me something about what's happening in their world, personal or professional. How do you have the time? I, I think it's a priority. You know, I think you make you, the time. It's yes. it's a priority. I mean, if there's six, my customers are not the fifty thousand people that use the agency every year. My customers are the six hundred staff who work for the agency. Their customers are the fifty thousand people. My customers are the six hundred. My job is to keep our team happy. And you know, the other day uh, we uh, we had to separate from an employee, and it was sort of abrupt. Uh, way that we had to do it just because of the circumstances surrounding it. And the internal culture management team sent me an email and said it really was jarring to some people about how it happened. They didn't they didn't see it coming. Uh, they, it made them nervous about their jobs. They didn't know what the thinking was behind it. And we didn't do a good job communicating it to people. We sort of didn't communicate it with, to people. And it sort of left everybody wondering. One day person X is here and the next day they're not here. Like what happened? Um, and I thought to myself, yeah, they're right. If I'm sitting in their seat, like that probably really is off-putting and we have to do a better job of it. So I think I'm learning from them how to be a better leader and how to communicate better. And I think they appreciate when I say, I don't know, or I made a mistake, or I need to do better, just like everybody has to do better. And I want them to do better too. And I think the best way to model that for them is actually like living it. I want to um, go back a second ago. You said that it's hard for you to go as frequently to school to open the doors early in the morning because of drop-off for your kids. And along those lines, I want to know, how do you as a CEO of this huge agency with all this responsibility balance that with being a a partner and a father? I think it is a constant uh, tension um, that is, uh, I, I believe, a, you know, a healthy tension. To have, I have a great husband named Matthew who has his own very successful career as a as a litigator at a Wall Street bank, and uh, is definitely no slouch. But both of us really believe in community and and community service and responsibility to community, and uh, we take that seriously. And I think there will be things that I won't show up to for my kids. And I also hope my kids know that I might not have shown up to everything that they did, but it wasn't because I was playing golf 
or it wasn't because I was, you know, playing tennis. I'll miss bedtime tonight to attend a community board meeting. But I'm going, I'm on the community board, which is an unpaid position, uh, because I've decided to raise my family in, in, in a neighborhood, and I want to make sure that neighborhood's the best neighborhood it could be. And so, you know, they're all sort of trade-offs, and they're no easy decisions. And you just, again, there are 15 parenting decisions that you can make on any given day. And five of those will be great, and five of those will be okay, and five of those you wish you would have had a chance to do over again and you hope everybody's understanding at the end of the day and some days we're all understanding and some days we're like less patient than we should be with each other um, and you know it's a work in progress speaking of progress uh, and the journey where where do you see educational Alliance moving in the coming years what are your goals what are you working on what can we expect and 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 what's your wish for the organization and for the community that you're a part of you know I think there has been a lot of conversation about the gentrification in our neighborhood in lower Manhattan um, and I wish a fraction of that attention and rhetoric by the community would be devoted to the fact that our public schools are failing our children. When you have a graduation rate of only 37%, when there are elementary schools whose doors are open that have a proficiency rate of only 3%, right? I don't see us doing right by our young people when that's the circumstance. Now, everybody can debate on what the solution to that's going to be, but I believe getting enough energy and attention on that issue alone is going to be critical. And so I hope whatever we do moving forward, I'm making a bet that I'm, I'm going to bet that education is going to be something we spend a lot of time thinking about, um, because I think that is a singularly good thing that we can be doing for our neighborhood. And um, to continue with that question of dreams, you've already accomplished so much, and you are so young. We have so much more uh, to expect and to look forward to from you. So, so, so much more. But um, what are your own personal dreams in the immediate future, in the long-term future? I got to tell you, I can't tell a lie. I see you doing gov- more government. I see you returning to government. Am doing I wrong what? in that? Doing what? Being I want to know what? Le- leading us. Who would vote for me? <laughs> Everyone, <laughs> you've got my vote right Thank here. You. But can we expect anything else along those lines? Or yeah, or I mean, look, I think you know how um, when you ask somebody, do you want? Oh, do you ever see yourself running for office? And they go, No, I don't think I should uh, ever run. You know, I'm not so sure. And like, and they they're very coy about it, but really, they deep down want to do it. I always said that's such BS because why don't you just say you want to do it? Like, I will say, since I was very little, I've always been told by people that they think I should go into elected office. I always have hoped right? at I'm one not day. No, I always hoped at one day that I would go into elected office, but I absolutely do not think that I wake up every day thinking my dream is to be in elected office. I think elected office should be a vehicle to making something better, right? And to the extent, and if I ever find the opportunity where I believe that there is an elected position where I could do better in government than I could do out of government, I would do it. And I also think that if there was an opportunity for me to to get people to understand that public service, including running for office, is actually a noble cause and is, and is something that more and more people should do, then I would do it too if I could be a good representation of that. I think we have too few people participating in the electoral process. I think it's too insular. Um, And I think then you get what you get. Um, And so I would would find it unlikely 
if at some point I don't run for office, um, what that will be, when that will happen, you know, will it be when I'm like retired and, and career and this is like the last thing I do in my life? Will it be something I do in the middle of my life? I don't know. I think a lot of it's going to be determined by what the need is and also my children and my family. So if that remains undetermined and yes. to be seen, um, then what else are you thinking about? Is it is it just growing Educational Alliance as much as you can in these next few years? Is it having more of a family? Is it better balance? Is it something entirely different? What? You know, I don't believe in a plan. And that's, that's a great I, I answer don't, also. I, I that's probably I, the most honest and the best I, do, I don't believe in a plan. I have never... I've never said this is what I'm going to do and then like sought to do that opportunities have always I've been blessed that opportunities have always come to me and I think a part of that is that I've always been open to receive them right if you walk around in life and you sit and say well you know this never happens and that never happens and I'm stuck in this and I'm stuck in that then you become a closed and insular person and you don't invite those opportunities to come to you if you walk around thinking to yourself, life for me is actually pretty good, and I might have challenges, but there isn't anything I can't move through on any given day, and like my life has meaning, and there's a lot of things I can affect. When you walk through life with that attitude, I think you know, you turn down lots of opportunities because things come to you. And I have always been somebody who really walks around with those with that attitude. Now, I think there are skeptics who would say, God, that is such a Pollyanna-like attitude. I don't buy that. I mean, I think that's skeptical. Like, for me, this is working. I've been it sure this, is. I've it been sure this way is. since I was young. I think this is going to be how I'm going to live my life, you know, God willing, the re in a long way, you know, but I really do believe. And, you know, I have to say, sometimes you get in this this routine, but then it's even interviews like this that make me remind myself and give myself energy. And I go, oh, wait a second. Like, this is really great. Like, how many people get to wake up and do this incredibly fun interview, like on a given day? Like, that's great. And how did we find this interview? Because we randomly met each other at a speaking engagement. And like, you came up and said, hey, I just want to talk to you. Like, that to me is like, this is how lots of life's moments happen. And I make you a bet. We're going to know each other for a really long time. I look forward to it. Um, Alan, I am so glad that I saw you on that day uh, when I heard you speak and I was so inspired. I said to myself, this person has to be on the show. Thank Wait, you. Wait, can we do one more thing? We can do I like to more. either start or end a conversation by going like, on, I have a happiness quotient. Oh my God, I want to hear. I okay, so the happiness yeah. quotient is where people are on a one to 10 scale. So 10 is blissed out and one is I need an interventionist. And before I start meetings, I'm always like, okay, where are people? Are you like a 10? Or we should have done this when we started. And so, uh, and so Matt and I will do this sometimes when we're like in Target with the kids and we'll be walking down these big aisles and I'll go, oh my God, like an eight and a half. Like the boys have books in their hands. Nobody's fighting with each other. Matt's like, like it's totally peaceful, good air conditioning, like totally great. And all of a sudden, uh, I know. And all of a sudden somebody will say, uh, the, the kids will start to fight and I'm like, oh my God, I'm a four and falling, which means like I need help. So before we end the interview on, my, on your happiness quotient, where do I find you in this minute? You just have to give a number because you don't have to unpack it. Unless you choose to unpack it. Unless you choose to unpack it. I'll give it a nine. I'll give it a nine. I had a hard week um, coming into this interview, but I am getting, in the same way that, that you're getting energy out of this, I am getting so much energy out of listening to you speak. I am, I am in awe of you. And um, 
and and so inspired by you and so moved by what you do and um, your energy has kind of passed on to me. So thank you for that and thank you for uplifting me. And uh, that's a perfect question for me to end with. Where are you on the one to 10 scale? I'm a 9.5. And do you want to unpack that? I just did. <laughs> okay. Alan, thank you so much. This was perfect. It was a wonderful day. I'm thrilled you were on Thanks for show. asking. Have me back. <laughs> thank you. This is Jessica Lips with Lips on Life. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.